Well, there is one image, one symbol that we equate with this day, one facet that draws our attention to how everything is different. And it's just this. It's what we call the empty tomb. It is an image of what we believe to be the reality that Jesus actually rose from the dead. There's not conjecture about whether he lived or died, but we believe he actually rose from the dead. Now, I don't know what your friendships or relationships are like, or even where you are today. I know for me, I have a bunch of friends, different friends that I care deeply about that have no background or no thought about following Jesus. And they become quite good friends, many of them, and they even like things that, that I do. They'll tell me, you seem like you're a real person and not like some of those. They, they don't like all of us, by the way. It's not been good all the way around. <laughs> but it's funny because even when I have that, then there are things I say and they just look at me like, what's, it, what's the matter with you? What's wrong with you? You know, like when you're sitting with someone and you say, hey, you know, I actually believe that God tells us to give up our lives and to sacrificially live to bring life to other people. They go, that's weird. Or, or start talking about other things about how Jesus calls us to live differently, to actually live what we call holy lives or that we're gonna care for the forgotten and the forsaken, that we're gonna live in a whole different kind of ethic and way through sexuality, that we're gonna take a number of the things that we do and people look at you like, what's wrong? But when you tell them you believe Jesus rose, do you know what they look at you like? I don't know what you're smoking. And I tell them, I'm not just smoking it, man. I'm selling it. I'm buying this thing. I actually think this is true. And where we get to in this, when we look at this empty tomb, when we think about what this means, it's not a wonderful representation. We can even, and we often do this at Easter, we talk about the very events that happened right on that first moment. And they're powerful just to talk about. I mean, when people are asking me questions and saying, how could you believe this? And you go, well, there's some really interesting things to consider. Did you know, for example, that all the early witnesses in every one of those four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them the Gospels, did you know in every one, the first people to find Jesus are women? Are you going to tell me women lie? I don't say that to them, but um, what I tell them is in the ancient world, women had no, their opinion, their statement, their testimony was irrelevant. They weren't men. So the fact that the scriptures even have women be the testimony is confusing if you're trying to make a case. Why would you do that unless it were true? That's just one little thing you look at and go, well, that's kind of interesting. I'm... And then think about these early disciples. They, if they were anywhere like any other movement where there'd been a Messiah, which Jewish life had had lots of them, once the Messiah died, whoever was second in command moved into that role. They're the new Messiah. That didn't happen. All these early people said, guess what? I'm buying it. I'm going along with them. And then the, all these testimonies are them saying they saw him. And by the way, Paul writes that 500 people saw him. Paul is one of our earliest leaders, writes it to a group of people that would know the people that he's talking about. So they can't just say other people saw them. They're actually talking to people who saw him. That kind of messes with you, doesn't it? I mean, and if that weren't enough, not one person ever said it didn't happen, which we all give up when there's some kind of conspiracy. So that's confusing. And then let's look at the whole reality that the early church just grows hugely all through the Roman Empire and yet it doesn't do it through political power. It doesn't do it through money. It doesn't do it through any kind of, they have the top caste system and that's how they get there. They do it with nobodies living and loving in a way that makes no sense to anyone around them that quite honestly is weird. And I'm sure they were all looking at them going, what are you smoking? And they said, guess what? I'm selling it too. I mean, it's just, there's a lot to consider and I'm not even trying to convince you today 
what I want to look past is not just the event of the resurrection, but what does it actually mean? What do you and I get? What do we live in as a result of this? Because it's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful idea. And the cross is part of this. It goes right alongside of it. And so I, I want to begin just with the reality. This is what the church, what we've understood and what we live in. So when we look at the cross, that's the place where Jesus dies and the way Jesus dies, that he is literally crucified and died. Now, when he dies, at the moment he dies, he says it's finished, then he dies, and the temple curtain is torn in two, which the temple curtain is there to keep God kind of at a little bit of a distance from the rest of the people because he's too holy for them to see. When that curtain is torn, and the earth shakes, by the way, it is a very image telling us, guess what? Jesus actually conquered sin. That's what we believe. We believe through the cross that Jesus actually conquered sin. Now what that means is you and I, all the mess and brokenness we have, all the things we do intentionally, unintentionally, the things that happen to us, the things we cause, Jesus actually came to pay for that and change it. Whew. Now that's crazy, but it's awesome. And it's true. We believe that. Then we move to the resurrection. We go, guess what? And then Jesus rose from the dead. That even proves it because if he conquered death or if he conquered sin and death, then death is no more. Guess what? He rose. It's kind of showing that it's true. That's what we believe from it. But this is how we live. I'm forgiven. Awesome. I'm going to keep making a lot of mistakes. going to keep being a mess. I'll just keep being forgiven. I hope God has a lot more for me. And by the way, once I die, I get to be with Jesus. That's resurrection. That's what the mistake we make. We, we move it to something forever and don't think about it for now. In fact, Jesus, right after he's raised uh, and is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, one of his sisters says, hey, I, I know there's going to be resurrection at the, at the last day. And he goes, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life right now. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. In other words, resurrection means something right now. Now, we've been spending this whole season leading up to Easter. If you haven't been with us, you might want to even go back. But we looked for four weeks at the fact that Jesus made this statement to his early disciples, the way the whole world's going to know you is by your love. That's how they're going to know you. So for four weeks, we looked at this kind of love that, by the way, makes no sense. It's another thing. When I tell my friends about it, they just look at me like, well, if it doesn't come back, if it's not reciprocal, if it's not, well, that's not the way Jesus calls us to love. It's a new love. And then we said it's born out of who Jesus is. He's the author of love. And guess what? His death on a cross is an image of sacrificial love. Jesus dies for sin when we still do it, meaning he doesn't do it after we get better. He does it in the grossest, messiest, troubling way of who we are. <sighs> That's amazing, isn't it? That's the picture we have. And then at the resurrection, we get this other picture not only does Jesus die for us, sacrificial love, but guess what? Jesus' love is life-giving. The tomb, the empty tomb, is a picture of Jesus coming to make things new. That life, resurrection, begins with his resurrection. Scripture describes Jesus as first fruits, meaning he's the first one that comes and then we follow. And it's not just when we die, we're with him. It's he's bringing new life to us now to live in new ways, to be a new people. In, in case you're not familiar with it, when we go all the way back to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden and they're expelled from it. And there's a bunch of curses. There's a curse on him, her, on the devil, and actually on the earth. In fact, it's one of the curses is there'll be thorns. When Jesus wears a crown of thorns, he's carrying the very curse of the earth when he goes to die. When Jesus rises, 
He's saying, I'm redeeming the earth. I'm redeeming you. I'm redeeming everything around me, and you have a new hope and a new purpose. There's more right now, not when you die only. That's the culmination. It's a new day. It's not complete, but I'm moving in that direction, and guess what? You get to be part of it. Easter is not just a nice, hey, I'm forgiven, and guess what? When I go and die, I'll be with Jesus. It's new now. And what we're going to look is how that plays out in one of the four accounts, in Matthew's in particular, that what Jesus says to them at the very end, before he goes to be with the Father, we get a picture beyond simply Jesus rose and what that was like to what does this mean? And so we're going to take it up here in Matthew 28. It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Judas is gone now. He has actually taken himself out after what he's done. They went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, for every gospel account, each one is kind of giving us a different light on who Jesus is. And so I just don't want you to miss this. It's not central, but they're in a mountain. And in Matthew's account, mountains are very important. Big things happen there. The first account of a mountain is when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. The devil takes him to a mountain and the devil says, I have all the authority on earth. I have that because of sin, because of what's happened. You worship me and I'll let you have the whole kingdom of earth, but you worship me. And Jesus says, no, 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 only the Father, never. Now, that's the first mountain experience. The next one is one that if you've been around church, you'd know it's, we're here about the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon of the Beatitudes. Jesus is on a mountain and he's teaching thousands of people what it means to follow him. And by the way, everything he's teaching is what's going to happen after his resurrection. It's what happens and how people live when they're made new, when God brings new life, when this love of Jesus leads them to a new way. We fast forward to another time on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. What that means is ultimately he becomes really shiny, and we, they, three of his disciples get to see him as he is in his beauty and wonder and glory and majesty of his divinity. Then we take one more. There's a final set of teachings Jesus does on a mountain that are very important. Again, they're about hypocrisy, and they're about how we live and not pretend to be his but actually are his. And now we're in this final step on a mountain. And here he is again. It means it's significant. And it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. (laughs) I love this because in the modern day church, we have arguments all the time over worship. We even, we care about how we worship and how we experience worship. And we tend to think of worship simply as what we do when we're together and we sing rather than that's an exclamation of how we live. And all I want you to see in this is when they saw Jesus resurrected, nobody told them what to do. It was an incredibly holy moment that their response was, I see you. I can't believe you died and rose again. You're God. And they're on their knees just worshiping. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to convince people to worship. And I think I I want to know Jesus in a way that causes me to worship. So maybe for some of us, if we're critical, if we're evaluative, if we kind of have this consumer mentality of how and when we engage in responding to him, maybe it's not about what's going around us. It's that we haven't really discovered him for all he is. Maybe that's something to just ask for today. God, let me see you and really understand how amazing you are. Because that's all this is saying. But it doesn't end here. This is what I love. This, this is so true of the gospel accounts and so true of scripture. It's very honest but some doubted. Now, how'd you like to be one of those schleps, huh? 
I am looking at the resurrected Christ. He's standing there. He's been doing all sorts of things. Oh, by the way, I'm not sure I'm buying it. I mean, come on. Does that bother anyone that they're still doubting? It seems like, how could this be? And yet one of the beauties, again, of our wonderful accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that doubt plays a part in all four of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. In other words, doubt is a part of resurrection. Doubt is a part of what happens in the midst of seeing and even knowing. Let me take you to John's account. In John's account, Thomas, uh, and in case you don't know, you may have even heard this, a doubting Thomas, this comes from John's account. So what happens is all these other people, the rest of the disciples actually are with Jesus and see him. And they tell Thomas about it. That's where we take it up. And this is what happens. So the other disciples, they tell him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger, finger where the nails were and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. That's where we get doubting Thomas from, by the way. Now, you may even sit and go, well, why can't he just buy the, what the other people are saying? Isn't this honest, though? And by the way, isn't this a picture of what the church is supposed to be? Because he's saying this in the context of other disciples. This is the church. He's with the church, and he's saying, I'd like to believe, but guess what? Unless I see it, I can't do it for myself. And I love what follows. A week later, he gets to see Jesus. And he still is questioning, looking at him, and Jesus says, I know you have questions. Man, go ahead and feel the holes and see that it's real. And when Thomas does, he says, oh, my Lord and my Savior, and he believes. I love that even in his presence, there's doubt, and that's part of what's in the church. When I was growing up, oftentimes people used one verse to kind of dismiss this, one where he says, believe and don't doubt, and they take any doubt. If you have doubts, you say, hey, you just need to believe. Can you imagine if you're doubting something and someone says you just need to believe how unhelpful that is? Oh, I'd never thought of that before. Well, that takes my doubt away. Thank you. No help whatsoever, is it? I love, these people are looking at his presence and they're doubting. I love that Thomas is standing next to him and struggling and doubting all four accounts of this. And make no mistake, it's still frustrating. Like in, in uh, Mark's account, Jesus is actually like, man, when are you going to believe? I'm right here. And then we see it in Matthew's account. They're looking at him. Some are worshiping and there's still doubt. That should give us great hope. One of the things I ache over is that people have doubts, but they never explore them or move towards with other Christians how they might discover who he is. God wants to answer it on the other side of doubt. It's actually one of my favorite things when I meet with and hang out with different ones of my friends who aren't Christians, especially when they love to, you know, just look at me like, dude, what's wrong with you about this resurrection thing? I mean, it's not, teaching's great. Don't get so weird. And I go, well, let's talk about why you doubt that. I'd love to hear what you wonder about. Walking in that, that's what the church is supposed to do. They worshiped and some doubted. Wow. That should give us great hope. Sometimes I fear that we are less powerfully moving with Jesus because we have doubts, but we never talk about them, and we just kind of keep them down there, and we pretend like we believe more than we do, but we really don't live into it. I think there's more for us than that. Now, that's where Jesus begins in this interaction, and then he's going to continue on. Remember, they worshiped and some doubted. Now we'll continue with what happens. Then Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now that might seem like, well, of course, he's the son of God. He already had this. That's not what he's saying here, though. If, I, if you remember what I said earlier, he's placed on a mountain 
with the devil where the devil tempts him, hey, I have the authority in the world. You, you serve me and you worship me and then I'll give you all this power. And Jesus doesn't. But what he's saying here is through his death comes resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection brings new authority. Jesus is beginning to reclaim the creation, but he's reclaiming it in a new way. He's going to begin to bring the new way of life somewhat in little different ways in creation, but mostly and even more through us. He wants to bring new life to us. He's saying, I've been given all, heaven, all authority from heaven and earth. I have a new authority. I have changed the day. I am recreating. I am bringing new. It's crazy when you think about it. God makes Adam and Eve in his, in, in his image, and they are in relationship, and they sin. They break relationship. By the way, that's the first time faith has to enter because God now has to do things to help them along the way and they have to actually begin to believe. Right at that moment, through all these curses, it says, guess what? He's gonna bring someone and they're gonna strike. They're gonna kill this serpent. They're gonna get the authority back. Jesus is now recreating humanity in us. That's what he's saying I'm doing. I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. It's a new day. It isn't just when you die and get to be with me. And by the way, in case you don't know it, heaven isn't this distant place ultimately. Heaven and earth will come together, meaning there will be a new heaven and a new earth at the end of time. Jesus will return and bring with him a new way on earth. Wow. He says, it's getting started. I'm just getting started. That's what he's saying. And now from here, he's gonna give them instructions. He's actually gonna tell them what the resurrection means and what it means for them. And before I show this to you, I just wanna give you a kind of an idea of it because it's funny. We actually talked about this in March last year. We had a time together with those of you who would call yourself core and we said this real simple thing that the church is often viewed as a nice, wonderful cruise ship that we get people onto it and there's all sorts of decks to hang out and play on and that's the life of the church. But the church is really like an aircraft carrier that you refuel and then you're sent out. We call it the church deployed because everywhere you go, that's where the church is to be. And then beautifully, five days later, we close the church for months, which I had no idea we were gonna do. It was like, that was not the illustration I was looking for with the church being deployed, but apparently we deployed you in ways I never thought we would. But in some ways, it's better because it gives us an image. Coming together is that like being on the mountain. It's like the refueling, but it's not the way we live. And unfortunately, many of us live, we like the post-resurrection where we sit on the mountain and we worship, and maybe we even process our doubts, but then we go back and we live our lives. Oh, you know what? I'm loving what I'm doing in my life. My life's great. And we kind of become satisfied in our own little existence, though even on our best day, let's be honest, it never fully gives us what we hope for. Or then there's some of us who go, I'm just treading water, I'm trying to survive. You don't know what a big hole I've dug in my life. You don't know how bad this is, there's no way out. Either way, we think it's only gonna get better in the end. That's not what Jesus said and that's not what resurrection means. Now we take to what he does and it's literally, you could just write church deployed because I believe that's what he's saying. He says this, therefore, I got, I got a mission for you. Go and make disciples. Baptize them of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the ages. <laughs> I mean, I, if I could just write church deployed over it, that's what I'd write because that's ultimately what he's saying is, guess what? 
I am sending you out. You want to know about my resurrection? My resurrection isn't just a moment to make life better after you die. My resurrection is a new life. You're coming out of the tomb too. And because you're coming out with new life, I'm about to send you in a new way to live. Now, there's four verbs in this. I just want to make it simple and clear. I, I highlighted the one that's the main verb, which is to make. This is the life of the church. You want to know how we change the world? We make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean you force it. A disciple is simply one who follows another and becomes like them. And then that one follows another and becomes like them. And guess who are? We're all following. It's Jesus. Making disciples simply means you and I become more like him and we help other people to become more like him and they help other people to become more like him. We're not trying to make churchgoers who, hey, we're forgiven and let's go live our lives the way we want to, but when we die, we'll be with Jesus. We are followers of Jesus who have new life in us and a new mission in us. We go and make disciples. Don't jump up and down too much. I'm just telling you, it's way better than what you're doing right now. It is. That's the part to me that's so hard that we don't get. And just so you know, these are the three supporting ones. It's go, it's baptize, and it's teach. Those are the three things. And all they do is they point to what it means to make disciples, just so you understand. The go part is what I want you to really consider today, which is we're not sending you out all over the world, though some of you will get called that way. But did you realize that wherever you go tomorrow, that's what go means? <laughs> you're an accountant and you're gonna go work in your office as an accountant tomorrow. Jesus is sending you go. Go, bring the new life of who you are, where you are. That doesn't mean you just go talk about it. It means you live differently and that informs and leads and influences in new ways and you're led in new ways to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. To offer the same kind of new hope you've experienced. You're a teacher, you're now going into there. You're a homemaker, you're living it out in there. You're retired, guess what? You don't get to just retire, you refire. And you know what? God still has mission for you. It's not just playing golf and enjoying your wonder years. God has something for you. You're a teenager, no, no, it's not when you get older. Guess what? He's saying go, you have new life and I want you to bring the new life wherever you go. We called it the church deployed because you go places no one else will go. Do, do you realize that's the beauty of Jesus? Hey, it's not that I rose and then you all come to a building and you sing to me and you learn together and then you just enjoy your little ship you're on. You come here to refuel and I send you to places no one else can go to reach people no one else will reach with a new hope, the new life, and the new way of God. In case you don't know, that is better than what you're living for. If you're living for your retirement, if you're living to make sure your family's as comfortable as it can be, if you're living to kind of get one more notch ahead, if you're living hoping that you can somehow unbury from the mess that you're in and no one will see it until you get better, if you're living in a place going, there's no way I could ever find help and hope out of this, that's what's death and resurrection. Whew. No, you can't. Sometimes I think it's easier when you're a mess to do it than when life's going well. Because when it's going well, you're kind of like, well, it's pretty good. Maybe I'll just keep this much and kind of take Jesus as a little extra insurance policy. It's not how it works. Go. Go make disciples. Oh, by the way, baptize them. You know what that means? It just simply means it's new life that we're washed into, but it also means the Spirit fills us freshly. It's the beauty of who Jesus is. He doesn't just leave us alone. He brings his Spirit. Teach? Oh, did you know we actually have to grow up in this thing called faith? I'm always amazed because we all say it. I don't have time to actually be a disciple, to follow Jesus and do the things. But man, you got time for a whole lot of other stuff and you're just believing a lie that you don't have time. 
Now, I can't make you do it, and I certainly can't guilt you into it, nor do I want to. But what I'll tell you is you're missing out. (laughs) You're settling for kind of a middle-of-the-road life when it can be new life. It's just so much more than we have and want. And I love this. This is how he finishes, by the way. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel starts the same way. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and it finishes this way. We always get torqued. Why did Jesus leave? Why didn't he just stick around and change the world? Well, he left because he wanted to reach more of the world. And he gave us a spirit so he could be with us in that. He's present everywhere instead of just in one place. And we wouldn't even be around if he just decided, hey, it's a one and done. I rose, it's all over. Because he loves us <laughs> and he wants more for us. That empty tomb has a lot more meaning than when I die, I get to go to heaven, doesn't it? And it's a lot bigger than just, oh, I hope my work goes well and I hope my family's happy and I hope things aren't too painful or difficult. It's so much bigger. Jesus' love is life-giving. He makes things new. You want to know what he's in the business of? He's in the business of death and resurrection. Oh, no, you don't understand. The stuff I've done, I could never be free of. Oh, no, no. Jesus died and he rose. I'm sorry. Resurrection trumps that. Oh, but life's pretty good for me. I mean, and I can kind of keep working and peddling, making this thing go. You'll never, you'll never get to what you think you will to fulfill yourself. And you will never redeem your own life. You'll never do enough. Man, get off the treadmill. Let there be death and resurrection. Let there be new life. Quit settling for less. Easter's not meant to be a one and done day. Hey, it's coming to Easter. Let's cheer us on. Jesus rose. It's all good. Let me get back to my wonderful little West Michigan life. You know that we are a wonderful little West Michigan people, don't you? I mean, have you looked at us? Look at us. Oh, we're nice. We're good people. I like them. That's not it. And that's not resurrection. And sometimes it's not even true. Let's be honest. There's a lot of brokenness underneath. We just, some of us hide it better and some of us dress it up better. And Jesus came and brought life-giving life-giving love, and he makes things new. He is beginning to make a new creation. He is reforming what he did at the beginning of time and bringing new life to it out of his own resurrection. Did you know he brings you new life? You don't have to stay the way you are. His spirit actually wants to transform and change you, but you can't do it on your own. You need him. That's resurrection. That's walking in resurrection. Did you know you have new purpose? I do not care what your job is, and I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is there's not one greater and one lesser. The fact is whatever you do can be something that God gives new purpose for. How many times have we talked about how unhappy we are? My job has things I don't like to do. It's not all good. Oh, he's not very nice. I'm not getting promoted. This is... Or we think we're king of the hill because it is going well. We don't need resurrection. We're pretty good ourselves. No, we're not. New purpose. Guess what? I want every one of you to be the church deployed. You are going to change the world. (laughs) Come on. I know when I read that in the New Testament, I read the book of Acts, I'm like, what was he thinking? And then I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh man, I'm glad he was thinking that way. It means that I'm I'm worthy of this too. You're worthy of this. He's going to change the world through all of you. Through his resurrection, he brings new life to you. A new purpose. Whenever people tell me they don't know what their purpose is, I'm like, guess what? I don't know what your vocation is, but man, God's got purpose for you. 
You are going to reach people no one will reach in ways no one can do, bringing life and redemption and hope and just the power of resurrection to a people in need, a world in need. I love this. I love, and finally I'll just say it's a new hope. You know, it's been a rough year. I'm sure it has for many of you too. I've listened to a lot of hopelessness. I've listened to a lot of worry. You know, people don't agree on politics. People don't agree on social justice. People don't agree on helping people or whether we're hurting people. People don't agree on masks or no masks. People don't agree on anything anymore. Man, the resurrection is all we have to think about. Do you know Jesus is going to change the world through a people? Not through a power, not through a politic, not through a persuasion, through a people. You know what the, t- the picture is at the end of time? Every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will worship him. It is the true multicultural project that can only be found in the Savior. We can't do it. Tell me that's not an answer for the mess we're in. Tell me when we'll stop trying to fight it the wrong way and start trying to respond to the right God. New life, new purpose, new hope, a new creation. You know, it can be overwhelming, and I want you to just hear a story of it before we ask you to respond. I want you to hear a little bit from Emery. Emery's a college student, and you'll just hear the simplicity of some of the struggles she had. You'll hear doubt in there. You'll hear her movement towards, and you'll hear hope and purpose in the midst of all she's been journeying and discover Jesus. Just take a look. Hi, my name is Emery Troutner. I am 21 years old, and I'm currently attending Grand Valley State University. I've been going to All Shores probably about the past year or so, and it has been an amazing experience. So I grew up in a very loving household. My dad was a teacher, my mom was a social worker, and I was, it was always really simple, but we always just knew the necessities of everyday life. Um, we'd go to church every Sunday, my grandma was a greeter there, and it was just normal for us. And I think as a child, I always knew how loving God was and how faithful he was to us, but I don't think I ever actually understood how to develop a relationship with him. And I feel like that was almost just put at a halt when my parents got divorced um, going into ninth grade. I would just say it was just a major shock for everyone, and we just slowly stopped going to church in general. I feel like almost going to church kind of sparked um, more hurt for us. And I think as a Christian sometimes you wonder why do bad things happen to good people? And I think I was just kind of stuck on that question and I feel like it almost just kind of hurt my overall interpretation of my relationship with God in general. And I think that's just when I started to become a little stagnant in my relationship with God. I don't think that I wasn't because I didn't want a relationship with him. I think I was just scared of just feeling the hurt again. I also just don't think that I really knew how to pray. I was always asking God for things, but I never really fully appreciated what he was doing for me in my life. And because of that, I just it just led me to question if he really loved me. I knew he loved everyone else, but I was just so scared that he didn't love me. And Looking back at it now, I was looking at it from the wrong perspective. But as soon as I 
entered college, I think that my perspective completely changed. Um, it's mainly because I just had the independence to choose who I wanted to hang out with and what I wanted to do with my life. And for me, that kind of just sparked the question of what are you doing, you know? And I really did want a relationship with God, but I don't think I fully understood that until I just had a few struggles of my own. I just wanted to just let go of my worries and just leave it all up to God. And at that point, I think that's when I just sparked the most curiosity and I started asking more questions and I started volunteering more at All Shores and just meeting with this amazing women's group every week. And it was just funny because I was so intimidated by people that knew more than me, um, who knew more about the Bible than I did, who had a stronger relationship with God. And I just realized it's not really about what you know, it's just about how, where you start. Overall, I think that my life just did a complete 180. And I'm actually getting baptized soon, so I'm really happy about that. I would just say that I'm just so excited to see what the Lord has in store for me in my life to come. I love hearing from Emory, hey, I had these struggles and doubts. I just sat back, but I took a step. I was being in a group of women. I was being discipled. I'm asking my questions. I'm moving towards God. You know, when I was listening to her story this time, I was reminded, it happened several times in the Old Testament stories where God says he's going to move and they just have to take a step. You know, like they... He tells Moses to stick the staff in the water and the water parts. He tells them to step into the water at another time with the priest and the water moves. He always says, take a step and let me meet you. I don't know what your step is, but I want to pray for us right now. And I'm going to kind of guide you through some possibilities of what it might be. I want you to step. I don't want you to wait. I don't want you to say it was a nice idea. I want you to trust and take a step. We gotta take steps to find resurrection. Let's pray. And even as you pray, if you're here today, if you're online and you're going, I'm ready, I want the step of just following Jesus, then I wanna invite you just to pray this way as a step. Lord, I thank you for your death on the cross and that you died for my mess, my sin. I believe that and I step out and receive your new life, your resurrection life. Fill me with the spirit. That's all you have to ask. Maybe for others of us here, the step is, I like to just meet God on the mountain. I don't know what it means to actually step out and go and live in a new way and be deployed. So maybe your prayer is, God, I wanna step out Show me even this afternoon. Show me as I enter my workplace. Begin to lead me in this. Help me to put people around me to help me along the way. Maybe that's your prayer. Then for some that are with us, you do have doubts. You're going, I'm not ready yet. But you just sit back with your doubts. And maybe the step for you is I'll take a step asking others, can I talk to you about these doubts? And maybe your prayer is just, God, would you help me to have courage to ask for help? and to move towards you with my doubts rather than waiting back. And then I would hope anyone who follows Jesus, the prayer would just be this, Lord, help me live in resurrection. Help me to understand and walk into the new person you've made me to be. 
Help me to find purpose in my day-to-day life for you. And help me to both become a disciple and to disciple others. And Lord, I simply pray that you'd lead each one in what you have for them and you will lead us as a church to increasingly walk into destiny and purpose in you and new life in you. And then finally, I do want to pray for anyone here who just feels unable or unworthy for what you've done, hidden or even just cumulatively. God, would you minister to them that they know nothing is too far from your reach, that you die in our sin, not after we fix sin. And so may they receive that, but may they also walk into whatever that means, not to hide from it and bring new life to them out of it. I pray this in your name. Amen.